G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. This is the sermon in which you get very angry with me. But let me just tell you, you don't have to agree with me. Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Bynes. Today Jeff's message is about the riders of the apocalypse. We'll hear what the four riders in Revelation 6 represent and symbolise in the context of John's day and also for the future of our world. John is told that as the gospel goes out in conquest, there's a rider on a red horse and he bears the sword of execution. And he says, don't be surprised. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Okay, we're in a series on the book of Revelation, have you noticed? We're in Revelation chapter 6. You would do well if you have your Bible to go there. And, uh, woo, boy, okay, let's just get the cat out of the bag. I just want to tell you right now that if you're somebody that really enjoys studying the book of Revelation, and you've studied it for a long time, and you have your particular angle on it, and you have gone and you've listened to all kinds of famous preachers on it, and this is, you have determined that this is the way it is, this is the sermon in which you get very angry with me. Uh, now, remember what I said, remember what I said, uh, that nobody has it all right, uh, we do the best we can. Uh, I take a certain approach because I think it is the most tenable, most defensible. But let me just tell you, you don't have to agree with me. The only thing that you have to agree with me on is this, that uh, we all become pan-millennialists. That is, that it will all pan out in the end. And that Jesus will come back and it's all good. Now that you have to agree on. That's a, kind of a, a central tenet of, of uh, the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, we are to be a pitied people. And with the resurrection, we are the most happiest, glorious people where joy is central in our lives and sorrow is only peripheral because we figured out the big questions already. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. We're good to go. Okay, that's who we are. So having said that, uh, let me give you a quick illustration. We'll move right into the text and we're going to have to do a lot of textual work. So stay with me. And... Uh, I remember in 1978, it was one of my favorite Christmases because uh, my, I, had a, I had an uncle, his name was Uncle Kirby, and Uncle Kirby was related to a middle linebacker of the Dallas Cowboys, number 50, D.D. Lewis. They were cousins. So we all became Dallas Cowboy fans, which won't mean a lot to those of you who are younger, but I'm no longer a Cowboy fan, although we do have a player on the Cowboys today that is the only professional athlete ever to come out of my hometown. Uh, Jason Witten is from a little town in Tennessee called Elizabeth in Tennessee. And so we knew this Christmas we were going to get a whole bunch of paraphernalia associated with the Dallas Cowboys. We could not wait. We had these big boxes under the Christmas tree that they put under there around Thanksgiving. And we shook those presents all for 30 days, you know, waiting for Christmas. Wondering what was in there. When the day came, we opened it up. Man, we got a... a Team photograph of the 1978 Dallas Cowboys, uh, all signed. Man, it was fantastic. Some of my favorite players, Preston and Drew Pearson and Robert Newhouse and Roger Staubach. We got, we got a copy of a photo of Roger Staubach, man. This was so awesome. We were so happy. We got 
Dallas Cowboy trash cans. We also got Ed Tutal Jones. Remember Ed Tutal Jones, big number 72. We got these posters all over our wall. I mean, I went to school. I was bragging. I got a Dallas Cowboy jacket. I got Dallas Cowboy sweatshirt. I got Dallas Cowboy shoes. I got Dallas Cowboy toboggans. You call them beanies. We call them toboggans. I don't know why you be talking about but, but I got Dallas Cowboy everything. And I was so happy. I mean, I just wore that to school. I wore the same thing to school like for two months. Just so all my friends would see, man, I'm a Cowboy fan. Look what, and I know D.D. Lewis, you know, my, my uncle's cousin or something like that. And, uh, I just remember how excited I was, and I thought about that this week, is I wonder how excited John would have been when he sees the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, walk up to the throne of God and take that scroll out of God's hand. And he knew what the scroll was, the Biblion. He knew it was the will and last testament, not that God was going to die, but it was God's way of saying, I pass over the universe to my son Jesus, because it was still seven times, and we said last week that, that that's a dead giveaway, that the, the, the scroll that he has in his hand is something that is supposed to mimic a Roman will. A Roman will was sealed seven times, and within the will, you would leave everything that you own to the next person, but in the Roman days, you would be also be able to determine how that person used it. Now, we don't do that today. Once you're dead, man, you're dead, but in Rome, it was your way of living past the grave. Still, you dictated somewhat what would be done with the goods you left behind. And so John knows this scroll is a story of what's going to happen in humanity. And he also knows that it means that someone is going to own the universe and use it for the purposes of God and accomplish the purposes of God in the world. So John weeps when he discovers that no one's able to open it because he wants to know the future. And suddenly the lamb of God walks up, opens it and begins to open the scroll. Now, let me tell you what he's doing here. He is revealing the types of events that are going to happen from the time Jesus establishes his church until the time he returns. And suddenly he opens the first seal and the Bible tells us he sees a white horse. Now immediately we know this is a good guy because first of all he wears a crown and in the Greek it's the Stephanos crown. The Stephanos crown, remember, is worn by the good guys. The bad guys don't wear Stephanos crowns because it's the ultimate crown of victory. That's why I disagree. Now let me just say, I could be wrong, but my position is, my position is this. This cannot be the Antichrist. We're going to talk about an Antichrist later on in the series. But those who disagree with me say that the rapture happened in chapter 4, and I totally disagree with that. I don't see any rapture in chapter 4. I still believe in a rapture. I do believe the day will come and we're called up to meet him in the air. It's just not in chapter 4. And this is not the Antichrist because he's wearing the Stephanos crown. He's got the crown of victory. And also, we're told that he goes about conquering, that is, that he has conquered and he will conquer it in the future. Antichrist hasn't conquered and he will not conquer in the future. The ultimate conqueror is Jesus Christ. So something tells me about this white horse, and by the way, white is always associated with the good guys. White garments, white throne, the great white throne, and the white stone that have given to believers in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So this, in my humble opinion, is the gospel going out in conquest. And notice something, in apocalyptic literature, uh, sometimes it's just as important to see what is not there as it is what is there. We have a bow, we have no sword, the other guy's going to have swords, this guy's got a bow and he has no arrows. I think that's a direct correlation to the reality that this is war, but it's a different kind of war. It's war without bloodshed. So the gospel is going to go out and it's going to take territory and it's going to win the hearts of men, but it is not going to do it by force. 
War conquers on the outside, but it never conquers on the inside. I love what Thomas Merton said. God is not a Nazi, he says. The master of the universe would become its victim, powerless before a squad of soldiers in a garden. God made himself weak for one purpose, to let human beings choose freely for themselves what to do with him. God is going to base his appeal on the basis of sacrificial love. Power can force obedience, but it can never summon love. And the one thing God wants from us is a love relationship. So, during the time, from the time Jesus establishes his kingdom until the time he returns, the gospel is going to go out on conquest. And it's a different kind of conquest. It's not going to take things by force. It's going to win the human heart through sacrificial love. Now, you and I would do well to remember that. We are Christ's followers. We don't get angry with people who disagree with us. We don't kill people who don't agree with us. You understand? We do everything in love. And we know the way to the human heart is through sacrifice. Jesus gave us that example. Jesus never picked up a sword to kill anybody. What happened? He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. We are Christ's followers, which means we go out to conquer the human heart. Be careful what you do. Make sure you represent Christ well. And the Bible says the rider on the white horse went forth conquering and to conquer. He has conquered in the past. Sin and death have been defeated. You and I, death is not the end. It's simply the beginning of the real chapter of our life story. And he will conquer in the future. Hearts will indeed turn to him. And just in case we're confused on the rider on the white horse, it is best uh, interpreting the Bible as a science. It's called hermeneutics. And that's why when I hear people talk about, well, you Christians fundamentalists take the Bible literally. Only in those books that are written and meant to be taken literally. There are other books meant to be taken figuratively. Apocalyptic literature being one of those examples. So science of hermeneutics tells us how to translate, interpret, and understand the Bible. The more we know about that, the more we understand the Bible and don't get too far off the road or the beaten path. But in Revelation 19, one of the sciences of hermeneutic is this. Always interpret the unclear with the clear. Take something that is clear in the Bible, and that which is unclear, apply it. And so this is what we're doing here, because in Revelation 19, we're told who the rider on the white horse is. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Gee, there it is again. And he who sat on it was called faithful and true. We know who this is now. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. What kind of war? He's a battling He's battling for the hearts of men. His eyes were like the flames of fire. That's right out of Revelation 1. He penetrates the heart. He knows what's in our heart. And on his head were many crowns. We're talking about Christ and the gospel going out in conquest. This is Today with Jeff Vines. You're listening to Riders of the Apocalypse. Thanks for joining us. Let's continue with Pastor Jeff. Just quickly, I had a friend in uh, New Zealand. His name was Safray. He was a South African And we played a lot of golf together. And suddenly, he just stopped returning my calls. I mean, we played once a week together. I look forward to it. We go to different courses around Auckland, New Zealand. And he stopped returning my calls. I called him up one day. I said, dude, you know, it was right when uh, those uh, new cell phones came out. Remember those little Nokias? Those little bee things? You just kind of text and never mind. Uh, And so, I kept leaving him messages. And finally, he returned my call after about three months. And he said, oh, Pastor Jeff, I'm sorry I haven't returned your call. And I said, dude, what's wrong, man? I mean, what, what, what happened? He goes, well, I, I just didn't have the nerve to tell you that I, I just can't play golf with you. I thought, oh, boy, what did I do? He said, no, 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 no. I, I, I like you, Jeff. I really do. That's why I can't understand. I, I like hanging out with you. I like playing golf. I like our little competitions. I like having lunch afterwards. I said, well, dude, what's the problem? He said, every time I'm around you, there's a tension in me. 
I said, what? He said, yeah, I can't explain it, but I just get all, you know. And I said, well, Safray, you know what that tension is, don't you? He said, no, what is it? He said, well, every time we're together, we're talking about God, and I share my faith with you, and the hound of heaven is after you. There's something in your spirit that's stirring. To avoid that would be a mistake. I said, and I asked him, I said, have I ever offended you? No, no, not at all. I, do I not only answer the questions you ask? Absolutely. And he said, but I can't figure it out because when, you're, when I'm around you, I, these questions that I never ask come about. You know what I mean? Like origin, meaning, morality, and destiny? Yes. The hound of heaven is after you. The gospel is going to go out in conquest. Now, here's what's interesting. As it goes out, there's a horse that follows it. And this, if you think about it, makes perfect sense in human history. He's a red horse. Now, when we see red in the Bible, we automatically think of bloodshed or sins are scarlet. We think of something that is negative. And the Bible says when he opened the second seal, that he heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another as he was given a great sword. Now, there are a few clues here. Stay with me. This is why we have to do some textual work. Uh, last night, I preached 55 minutes. There's no way you can get that, is there? Because there's another service after you. Be thankful. Be ye thankful. <laughs> but I can't do some of the things I've done, so we've got to do textual work. Here we go. What's he saying? There are a few clues. Number one, notice this horse follows the white horse. As the gospel goes out in conquest, something's going to happen. And he says that power was given to him to take peace from the earth, that they should slay one another. But John is very direct in his Greek. And he doesn't use the word here for death or sword that is the word for general warfare. So he uses the sword, the makaria, the one that's a short dagger that's associated with the execution of believers. Okay, so this isn't war in general. This is a direct war against the people of God. So John would have gotten it. As the gospel goes out in conquest, those whose hearts are changed through generation after generation, they are going to suffer great persecution. They're going to suffer persecution from the time Jesus established his church right on down through the centuries until Jesus returns. Don't be surprised. And when I think of that, I think of Paul Marshall's book, Their Blood Cries Out. 60 countries around the world, 200 million of our brothers and sisters in Christ are harassed, abused, arrested, tortured, or executed simply because they are Christ followers. Did you hear that? 200 million. In places like the South Sudan, little children are sold into slavery, crucified, raped, and tortured. Last night, I had two little seven-year-old girls down here listening to this sermon. They were like, and I thought... That's the age that we're talking about. Seven years old, sold into slavery, tortured. Every time I think of the church going out and the gospel in conquest and the persecution, I think of the Manila Conference on World Evangelism that estimates that since 1950, 10 million Christians have died because they are simply Christ followers. That's more than the Holocaust. I think of the countless little children who are enslaved because they will not recant the name of Jesus. I think of husbands and wives and families that are completely torn apart. Because they refuse to denounce Jesus as Lord. I think of the homes of Christian families in India, in Asia, in Africa that are burned down simply because they are known in the community to be Christ followers. And I think of my pastor friends in India who work with Ajay Law. I think of their wives being raped and tortured because they are simply married to a minister of the gospel. And uh, a representative just a few weeks ago 
from an organization called the Security and Cooperation in Europe says that 105,000 people on average die every day because they are Christ followers. Sorry, die every year because they are Christ followers. That's one person every five minutes. One person every five minutes dies on planet Earth simply because they are a Christ follower. Not because they're fighting in any war. Not because they're some nominal Christian or some exhaustive wide definition of Christianity that if you die and you claim to be a Christian. No, we're talking about people who are murdered and slaughtered and slaves simply because they are Christ followers. So John is told that as the gospel goes out in conquest, there's a rider on a red horse and he bears the sword of execution. And he says, don't be surprised. In this world, you will have trouble. People will persecute you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And then we meet the black horse. Now, the black horse, I haven't drawn because it's more important what is in the hands of the rider on the black horse than the black horse itself. But we know black horse has something to do with something negative. That, I mean, that's what's just in, in the same way that white is representative of something positive, something pure, something good. Black represents something that is negative, something that is bad. But the Bible tells us as he opens up this seal that he looked in a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Again, right out of the Old Testament, these are symbols. Anytime you see a pair of scales in prophecy, you know it has to do with economic hardship. One denarius is one day's wage. And a loaf of bread is one day's staple. So he's saying that we're in a time when you make barely enough to buy barely enough to survive. It's the hand to mouth. He says, as the gospel goes out in conquest, the church will be persecuted. Those who have their hearts changed by the spirit of God, there will be many, but they will be persecuted because of their faith. And while that's happening, make sure you understand that there will be economic hardship of some kind. Now I want to say two things about this. Number one. I think what we're talking about here is the disproportion of wealth on planet earth because men are in charge. Okay, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. It's injustice. You see it all through the Old Testament and you see it through the New Testament and John is told that's not going to change. That's been happening since day one because when you put men in charge, we tend to exhibit power and authority over others, do favors to the ones we like and subdue those who don't, we don't. And so I think of Zimbabwe. When I lived in Zimbabwe, it was amazing. All through Zimbabwe, you got these mud huts, thatch roofs, you got the slums of Mbari, the slums of Chiringuiza, and then you could go to the northern part of the city of Harare and go through these gates, and it's like you were transplanted into another world. All of a sudden, you were in Barodell. And in Barodell, huge houses that I've not even seen here in the U.S. Incredible wealth. They shopped at grocery stores. They got their goods from an entirely different place. And right over across the street, right across the gate, were people who were starving to death and dying. But if you were wealthy enough to make it into this area, you had the best of everything. The rich get poor, richer and the poor get poor all throughout Africa because there are evil men at the helm. Corruption reigns on planet Earth. And don't think we're any different than in America. Almost half of the world's wealth is now owned by just 1% of the population. Seven out of 10 people live in countries where economic inequality has increased over the last 30 years. The richest countries are 80 times richer than poor countries on the whole. 80% of people in the world live on less than $10 a day. Nearly 50% lives on less than $2.50 a day. 
640 million people, twice the population of the United States, live without access to adequate shelter. They don't have a home, a roof over their head. And 1.1 billion people live without access to adequate water. And 2.6 million, over a third of all people on planet Earth, live without access to basic sanitation. And I just read an article where global wealth has increased 68% over the last 10 years. And three-fourths of it is right here in the United States of America. We are a privileged people. But in the context of the gospel going out in conquest and of the people of God being persecuted, I think in context we have to assume that he's talking about the economic hardship of the believer. Now, folks, you do realize, and this is my beef with those who make revelation about the last seven years of history instead of the seven years, three and a half, 42 months, 12, 60 days, the last part of when Jesus establishes kingdom and when he returns because the reality is these things have been happening since day one. Do you know the early Christians could not get jobs or they lost their jobs, their homes were burned, they suffered great economic hardship because they were Christ followers. In a, in a way, much worse than we do today. They couldn't get permits from the government to open businesses because they were Christ followers. You had to carry a paper with you, signed, that proved that you were willing to worship the emperor. If you didn't have that paper, you could not buy, you could not sell, you could not do anything. And economically, you suffered greatly. And the Christians refused to bow down to the emperor. They refused to go against the gospel, the good news of Christ. And because of that, they suffered greatly, economically speaking. Now see, that should help us understand... Because when it comes to Revelation, I've heard some whoppers. We love in America, we do, we love dramatizing things. Can I help you understand something? Let's skip over. In Revelation 13, we're going to be told that there's a beast of the earth and beast of the sea. And he will, he's going to cause all kind of damage, but great and small, rich and poor, free and slave. And he causes them, the Bible says, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of beasts. For it is a number of man. His number is 666. Man, have I heard some whoppers here. Well, that's the Visa card. If you turn it over, it's stripe 666. I mean, I've heard some crazy things on this. Can we just put it in context for a moment? Remember, where's the mark placed? On the wrist and on the forehead. Immediately, John would have thought about what? Old Testament phylacteries. The Old Testament phylacteries were worn by the Hebrews on their wrist and on their forehead. And there were little verses of scripture that were in little boxes to remind him that everything they think about has to do with the kingdom of God and everything their hands do is consistent with the kingdom of God. Now, <laughs> the writer's simply saying that if you think the thoughts of God and you do the work of God, you're going to have a hard time surviving, economically speaking, on planet Earth. They did in the first century. They lost their jobs. And even though we don't experience it right here in America that much right now, it's because we see everything through the filter of America. And that's a mistake because in two thirds of the rest of the world, there's a lot of Christians who cannot keep their jobs because they are Christ followers, because they will not do things that lack integrity. They will not do what their boss requires to cheat or to manipulate expense accounts or to do things that are just unholy and unrighteous. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and we're halfway through Pastor Jeff's fascinating message about the writers of the apocalypse. 
Hope you can join us next time to hear the remainder. In the meantime, to hear more from Pastor Jeff, head to the Vision website. That's vision.org.au and search for Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.